Welcome to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series, where throughout the world's greatest show at Expo 2020 Dubai, we'll be celebrating the best of the UK's creativity, innovation and culture, with special guests offering exclusive insight into ways we can innovate for a shared future. In this episode, host Hannah Austin talks to Lise Arlo about the benefits and importance of accessible installation art and its place in the world. Lise is the co-founder of Feral Horses and head of strategy at MTART Agency, a talent agency for visual artists and renowned public art experts. So thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the How Will We Create series of the Future Focus UK at Expo podcast. I'm Hannah Austin from the Department for International Trade. And today on the podcast, we're joined by Lise Arlo, Head of Strategy of MT Art Agency. Lise is an art entrepreneur, art business guest lecturer, and passionate about making art as open and accessible as possible. Welcome, Lise, and thank you for joining us today. Could you start off by telling us a bit about your background and your career history and how you came to be in the art world? Yes, yeah, so it was not um, it was not a given uh, that I would end up in the art industry. I come from a very small town in the southwest of France. Um, my parents, my family is not no one is very uh, extensive art collectors uh, or actually have. Uh, any sort of art backgrounds, but I just got passionate about it uh, for some reason and got intimately convinced of the value of actually having art in one's life and the impact that it could have. So when I was 17, I moved to London with this idea. Um, I ended up doing a kind of very business um, master and bachelor degrees because, as I said, I don't come from this world. I don't have existing connection. Um, so I come from a sort of background and setting where studying art history feels like it's not really a career or it's not really something you can live from. So I had to really prove myself at every little stage uh, to establish connection. And so I basically uh, met two incredible guys uh, who had the same convictions and we all were broke to start with. So we decided to set up uh, an art company that basically uh, was based on the idea of fractional ownership. So we could end up co-owning all the artworks of our dream that we could not <laughs> afford. Uh, and so we have set that up. We run it for three years uh, and I've sold more or less half a million uh, dollars worth of art to thousands of people. So you could uh, just buy 0.001% of a Banksy uh, for £20. Uh, that's what we were doing. And at this point, I met the founder of MTRT Agency, uh, Marine Tangi, who also comes from a very small town in France. And to be honest, she was the only entrepreneur I could really art entrepreneur I could relate uh, to on the art scene in London. She was, you know, same gender, coming from the same background, uh, without pre-existing connection. And uh, she became my mentor. And slowly I got more and more convinced that uh, public arts would actually be a much stronger means to bring more people to enjoy more art than fractional ownership. So I sold my old company, joined 
the team at MTL's agency. And that was a year ago. Uh, since then, I have led 25 plus public health projects uh, in London. So that idea of you being 17 and in a small town in France and wanting to move to London to kind of follow your art dreams, what about London was it that made you take that leap? It's, it is an incredible city, I must say. I was supposed to stay for six months. Um, next week, I'm going to celebrate my ninth year in this city. So I really call it home now. But it was really this mix of cultures. And at the end of the day, London is the second biggest market um, for the arts. There's the US, then there's London, then China. It's not even the UK. Um, so London is just this city where everything happens at once. You have so many artists still working and living there, even though it's such an expensive city and it's very difficult for a lot of creatives. Um, you really have this sentiment that culture is at the heart of why we live and work and want to pay expensive rent to be in this city to, to enjoy really this vibrant life that makes London, London. So let's carry on from there a little bit. We're talking about the culture in, in London and the accessibility of that. Do you believe at the moment that art is something that's accessible to everyone? So it's a bit of a yes and no. Um, in, in principles, yes. Um, a lot of museums are free. You have access to free culture. You have public art programs. There's just been, let's say, we have been tricked into thinking that arts is a very elitist um, activity. Um, but if we if we go back a little bit into history, as a society, men have started creating arts um, back in, when we were in the caves. So. We didn't wait to actually be settled, uh, have a roof over our heads, etc. We started making art really, really early on. And so there is really this idea that as a civilization, we needed to record important moments, to have conversations, to educate. And so with time, we made it something very complex that sometimes made people feel silly and that you don't understand that it's not for you, that you don't belong in a snub kind of white world gallery context. Um, so it is getting better, but it's there's still a lot of people who don't think they belong. I think the, the kind of Gen Z millennial generation are a bit more daring and we see a strong interest. Uh, we do have so many uh, first-time female collectors uh, starting their collection this year, which is incredible, but it's it's still it, it it needs to be pushed much much more. So I love that you're taking us right back to that idea of kind of early man painting pictures on his cave, because of course that is art, and that's how art kind of started in communities. So why do you believe that public art is so important for communities nowadays? So that's exactly, if, if we just take this allegory, um, I'm sure you are familiar with um, the pyramid of needs from Maslow. So we have been tricked into this idea that we need to fulfill everything before actually starting to think 
of art. Uh, my parents included thought I should study everything, have a good job, and then do whatever I wanted during my weekends and eventually be able to afford to collect art. So we really have this idea that art is really at the self-actualization level. That's the last day. Uh, it's a bit like the holy grail you reach at the very end of the road, whereas it should be something that is part of your everyday life. It has to be. Um, it is a way to be challenged when you need to and to basically be able to see the world and to see certain topics on the new perspectives, to question what you think, to question what you know, which is healthy in a society. But also it has a role to comfort and bring beauty and aesthetics when you need to and when the future is very, very down and need to be inspired and it also plays this role. So there's really a balance between becoming a better human, but also picking you up when you need to and giving you a little hug and telling you it's okay and clearing your mind. So it's, it's, it's a bit of everything at once. I think having art in your life is just, it's like a very good friend that you can confess to and they can help you go through your life and be a better person. I love that. I love that we've strayed into psychology and Maslow's hierarchy of needs and I completely understand that feeling of having to get everything else right before you start creating art and how that's integrated in our society. As you said, Gen Z millennials seem to get this a little bit better than than some of the older generation and I just thought on that idea that you're saying about when you're down what art can bring to you let's talk about COVID-19 and how we've all been through this incredibly strange 18 months how do you think COVID-19's impacted the cultural landscape and impacted I'm going to throw too many questions in here for you sorry (laughs) impacted London and the identity of London as a city, but also impacted the way people access art? Yes. So, I mean, COVID was definitely, it was hard for everyone. Um, Me personally, I was going through selling my company, a breakup, uh, grieving. It was was intense on many, many levels. And definitely, I, I really felt... How, like, not being able to go to a museum, not being able to go to a gallery, not being able to visit the studio of the artist I love, that was really tough. Um, seeing art online, and I have created and run a fully online art platform for, for three years, um, but it's not the same. I believe that art has to be digital. It, it has to be an experience that is enhanced by the digital, but that you have to see and appreciate in real life. So that was really, really tough. Um, and that's something that actually really encouraged me to join um, MTR's mid-pandemic because I wanted to be part of um, the kind of COVID recovery strategy that um, could be implemented, especially in the West End where I, I lived. And I just had so many ideas of what could be done because I was going on walks um, around the West End and I could see all those shops closing down one after the other, looking very grim. And it was starting to have basically a ripple effect because the tenants next door didn't want to keep on paying their rents to be next to something that was looking really bad with open cardboard boxes. And so most of my lockdown actually dedicated to putting up this very 
fast, effective uh, strategy that would cover all those windows of empty commercial units with art installation. So we basically turned um, Regent Street and the neighboring street with the Crown Estate into a big open air art exhibition uh, for people to enjoy during their daily walks. And that that gave, gave me purpose because at the end of the day, that's that's really what motivated the 17-year-old to move to London. It was this idea to bring people to see art and to have more art into their everyday lives. And so I spent a lot of my lockdown in tracksuits, but measuring windows and ringing production companies that could run at this point and finding solutions. And that was that was pretty insane, but pretty cool. And it's a, it's a programming that now we are actually um, scaling and that is going to be very interesting and have so much more uh, than just art vinyls. But we, we're getting we're getting there. Um, it's just basically it all started with a first customer survey um, with the Crown Estate. So that is one of our closest partner. Um, basically, just during the first lockdown, they had this big survey to try to understand what would be the number one reason for customers to return to the West End. And over 70% of people were to say to enjoy art and culture. So we really built on that and generated reports on how many people would engage with QR codes. Um, and yeah, so that, that turned the, the lockdown around, I would say. But at first it was, it was very, very sad to be just stuck at home. Um, no matter what we can say, a lot of, a lot of the art world is still very traditional, uh, still very offline. And so with COVID, a lot of very old fashioned people were kind of pushed into this online world and starting to have, um, viewing rooms, which very much are just pictures onto a web page, not really viewing rooms. <laughs> so they are a bit exhausting after a while. So we need to find more ways. Um, to basically have the digital give an extra experience and enhance our experience and our comprehension. Because why people sometimes don't connect with art is the inability to provide context, to understand why it's relevant, to understand the themes and, and basically start triggering questions and conversations. So the digital can help us do that in many, many ways. And that's where it gets interesting, in my opinion. And I think the, so there's a couple of things that you've said that I just want to ask a little bit more about. So I think what we're talking about, the demand was there. When we went into lockdown, people were sad and scared and everything was new and people wanted something to access. Um, so it's interesting what you were saying about the Crown Estate doing a survey that proved that and then kind of taking that, that that feeling we all had, that proof, and actually using it to create something really positive. Um, and just this term you use, the, the fidgetal. <laughs> I've not heard that before. Um, but interesting talking about the the art world, as you said, very traditional, and trying to get some kind of some kind of hybrid way of them putting their art out there so it's accessible to the community. Yeah, exactly. So it's not black and white. I, I really find the conversations about will art be fully digital or we will stay fully offline. I find them completely out of um, the reality of our world. 
the two have to be integrated and that's what brings value. It's not a fully digital world. It's not a fully offline world. We just have technologies that help us enhance our experience in life and from remotes. Just like this podcast is from remote, it's wonderful. We're having a great conversation that works. Uh, we will be probably having a great time catching up over coffee at one point as well. And that's wonderful. And the two bring value. And so it's the same here. It's really this mix of physical and digital interaction that really can bridge people who would not normally interact. And that's where the value comes. And I think just riffing off something you said earlier, Gen Z and millennials are so much better at mixing the two. And it comes so much more naturally for them that both worlds exist in collaboration rather than online being different to kind of in real life. Yeah, because I think it's just from a generational point of view, which is we're born with those technology uh, kind of developing at the same time. So we grew up with... Um, basically having this as part of our life and not thinking that, you know, it was taking over in any sense. So I get for all the generation, it kind of can be overwhelming sometimes. And you can still like, this is just, we're all going to be just avatars uh, going around in the digital world. But I don't really think we fully there. Um, the, the reality of it is just that, it is helping to have better experiences, to um, discover more arts, to be in touch with people from different nationalities, with different backstories, with different views of the world. And that's that's where it gets interesting. And it's absolutely something that we're facing with Expo 2020 Dubai, with having this great content in one place in Dubai, but still being in a world where people aren't uh, necessarily feeling that comfortable to travel. So we're trying to take our content with things exactly like this podcast and make sure that it's truly accessible to people all over the world and different generations as well. Um, but enough about what we're doing with Expo. I want to hear some more examples of the installation art that you've been working on and some of the installation art that you've seen emerging over the last year or so. Um, could you talk us through a couple of your favourite examples? Yes, so basically what I love and the reason why I joined MTR Agency is that all the public art projects are for the public, uh, which sounds obvious and should be common sense, but in truth, 90% of all public art projects that are installed um, never take the public uh, into consideration. So there's really no interaction with the local taxpayers regarding what they will have in their local areas and what themes will be addressed and what artists will be uh, represented and pressed and given visibility. And so it's really something that's at the core of MTR agency is fundamentally different. Um, we do public art projects that strike conversations that are for people to enjoy. Uh, and we take no interest in something that would leave you go... I don't know what is being discussed here. Don't, that makes me uncomfortable. That makes me uh, sort of feel silly. Um, so, for example, the the kind of the, the project that makes me ticked was um, a biodegradable fresco that was installed at the feet of the Eiffel Tower. So it's the Champ de Mars uh, area, and that was the largest biodegradable fresco ever installed in the world. It was in collaboration with 40B Corps, 
with the mayor of Paris, with also the team of the Eiffel Tower, because this fresco basically could be fully appreciated if you were to go on top of the Eiffel Tower, eventually redesigning and recreating a destination for Parisians who have been up the Eiffel Tower a million times and don't want to go ever again because the queue, because so many things. But because of the temporary installation that would self-destruct over time, that was basically redesigning an experience, redesigning uh, a full destination for them to go and uh, to enjoy this area that is highly touristic. The tourists were delighted, of course, to have this access as well. And so it was the first step of an international journey um, it's a full project that is called Beyond Walls. So that is all about um, basically talking about uh, the migrant crisis, talking about um, basically the role of France as well as uh, the country of human rights um, and, and starting this human chain. So it's it was a very literal um, series of hands holding each other that have been then uh, moved to other countries and that is basically creating the largest human chain in biodegradable paints all over the world. So that is the kind of project that we really care about. Um, of course, we were working with um, a charity that was relevant in this context, which was SOS Mediterranean. Um, and this is the kind of project that we love, love, love doing. Um, there is another one uh, that is um, a big favorite of mine, I would say, uh, which is a huge installation um, of Delphine Diallo in the middle of Regent Street. She has a series of 12 portraits of incredible black female um, reintegrating different ideas of um, the actual um, royalty. Um, back in Africa, that is a part of history that was erased by a lot of um, a lot of colonialist uh, kind of campaign, and so she's basically re kind of re-giving space and awareness and representation to those stories um, in a in a context that would basically not such a long time ago be at the core of um, the, the kind of cancellation of such stories. So this is the kind of ideas and projects that make it worth to wake up very early and go through a million health and safety meetings uh, and have crazy, crazy calculations to do and applications for permits that are very long and very boring, I would say. But then it's all worth it uh, when you see the first kid passing by and reading the stories, getting the QR code with the parents, sitting down. This is where it all, all makes sense. I think that particular example of the um, kind of black female royalty portraits in Regent Street um, links to so much of what our culture and what our community has been going through throughout the past kind of two years, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, even pieces of pieces of television such as Bridgerton that's kind of changing some of the, the way that we view uh, historical figures and putting more representation in period dramas. Um, it's so relevant and it really must have engaged all the young people who kind of passed through and given them a different view on history, hopefully. And I guess that's some of the intention. Absolutely. And even in London, you have this beautiful house that is called Kenwood that you can visit 
uh, that has an incredible art collection. You have a self-portrait by Rembrandt that is actually insane. I, I have no idea how this can still be in a small collection like this instead of uh, the National Portrait Gallery or something. But you basically have the story of one of the owners of this house had a child um, with an African woman back in the 18th century, I believe. And so the child at five years old basically was raised in this house and was an aristocrat. Um, and so it's the kind of stories that when we <laughs> watch Bridgerton and things like that, we feel that it's, it's a big of, um, it, it can't happen or it was completely out of place, but it's just stories that kind of got erased in some respect. So it's, it's interesting to go and cover that and to try to decolonize, um, our eyes and our views of histories. And art plays a huge, huge role in that. Yeah, absolutely. Taking those things that people might think are fiction or imaginary and saying, actually, no, there's some truth in this. This, this really happened. Um, how special to have brought that to the general public in a, in a time when um, there was a real demand for accessing art or there is a real demand for accessing art. How talking about the art market then, we've talked about kind of art in the public realm and what it brings to people, but the art market in particular, how can that support public art? So how is some of the work of um, that you're involved with and the MTR agency bringing art to the general public? So from a market perspective, um, this really very passionate about bringing measurable, tangible reports on uh, the, the actual impact of such activation uh, to the local communities, to the people. So we have different metrics. Um, on one side, there's definitely the idea of improving mental health. Uh, we have done several um, projects dealing with uh, arts on your commute, on your commuting journeys, etc. And we have received an overwhelming uh, majority of people saying that it has really improved their journey and the way they approach it, um, make them take different routes. So changing a bit the way they, they behave on the tube, being a bit less robotic, a bit more conscious, and actually looking forward to being surprised, to looking at something uh, nice, snapping a picture, telling people. Um, so that is something that we care tremendously about. Um, in general, London is also a city where about 65% of all tourists travel just for arts, history and culture. Uh, so once, you know, we have more confidence uh, to travel again, that is still something that is definitely present. Um, but also, if we think of a proper true uh, post-COVID world, if we see that, you know, we don't necessarily have to move to a big city to do the job of our dreams. Uh, we can work from remote. Uh, we don't necessarily have to move to a big city to study at the best universities. Um, what is really left? Like, why do we live in those huge settlements of <laughs> so many people living together? What makes it textured and stimulating and fulfilling as a place? What makes a city is really the art and culture. So we really have to reshape our understanding even of why do we travel? Why do we go to Regent Street? Why do we go to Oxford Streets? Because shopping, it is a tricky one. Uh, we do shop more and more online. 
we are a bit more conscious about how much we shop as well. So there's so much happening at the moment that we really need to reframe the identities of our cities from kind of retail destination to cultural destination. And it is thanks to this addition of culture that we can also have um, commercial activations that are pushed and supported. Um, all the all the tenants that are next to art exhibition are delighted because it brings footfall because people stop before uh, just before the glass cases. Um, the we also have collaborated, for example, with L'Occitane on a window display uh, during the second lockdown. Uh, while everybody still had their Christmas decoration looking very sad <laughs> and grim because nobody could come and change them, we basically have done something to um, quickly update uh, the the window case of the eighth quarter uh, of L'Occitane on Regent Street and give the kind of spring feeling because that was aligned with the launch of their products. And so it gave them this kind of breath of fresh air uh, with a winter display with the work of Claire Luxton that is an actual, actual, actual dream. And that would be also augmented, um, um, activated with augmented reality. So that's where the use of technology is actually giving something extra to the experience. And we had amazing feedback saying that it really had uh, opened up to a new kind of audience uh, that they have uh, gotten a lot of user-generated content. And so it basically brings um, people to build relationship with brands that are a bit more genuine, a bit more authentic. Uh, you basically feel grateful towards a brand that gives you an art experience that is inspiring and fulfilling. Um, and so that's where basically art and culture can also support commercial activities and pop-ups and so many activations that gets interesting and that catches um, our, our attention. Uh, we have to process so many visual every day. We're completely targeted by ads. And so especially younger generation who have been bombarded with advertisement and visual. With heat map kind of um, studies, we can see how much young people are able to block such advertisement visual and really are completely almost um, waterproof to that in, a, in some sense. So just putting your logo and your product and telling people to buy it, it just doesn't work anymore. Uh, you have to tell stories. You have to basically let people relate and get really to build a relationship and to get to, to, to do something that is interesting. It's not just about buying uh, a bottle of soap. It's about who you are and what you do and um, being inspired. And that's where we do a pretty good job, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And I love some of that thought around shops are closing, people are buying more online. And there's something there about sustainability and the way that people consume. But then when you put art into the shopping experience and it turns it from just Christmas shopping or that horrible stressful Christmas shopping into something that you can really enjoy and engage with and it kind of brightens your day a little bit and um, then yeah absolutely everyone benefits from that.
I might regret asking the next question, but are there ways that the government should be supporting public art that then that we're not doing currently or that we could do more both in this country, both in London and across the country and actually around the world and anything more international governments can do? There is a 10% um, kind of low and legal framework in many, many countries around the world that says that all real estate developments, uh, all new builds should have 10% of their budget dedicated to art uh, in some respect and cultural activations. It's not something that we have here, which is a bit of a shame. But at the same time, I think that it's it's a bit of a shame to always uh, think of art as a charitable activity. Um, it's it's really an idea that keeps it very elitist and um, that basically reinforces this idea that you have very rich patrons um, decided voluntarily to give a charitable uh, donation to push forward artists that they particularly like. And that, that's what makes uh, a lot of the public art installation basically very remote and very far from the public. And that doesn't include everyone. So I guess the future of our cities is to have public bodies working with commercial uh, and private bodies to actually do public art projects by including the local taxpayers, by including the communities. That is where we can really build programs and actually include art at the heart of smart cities. Smart cities are often um, very, very, very interesting on many levels from architectural to engineering to transport link. But the use of art and culture give a really polymathic approach towards how we can redesign and improve our cities and rethink how we live together. And that's where we can really bring incredible solutions. Um, I'm really passionate about the idea of bringing contemporary artists um, to consult on business settings and public uh, planning and civic planning. And that's something that we definitely need to do more of and to have almost legal framework that, if not forced, encourage and uh, incentivize people to do so. Absolutely. There's a part of our program that talks about smart cities and future infrastructure. And it's so focused on um, the individual's experience as they're going through that city in terms of efficiency and in terms of all the services working really well and getting you where you need to go and, and being kind of sustainable and efficient. And actually adding in that side that, well, is it enjoyable as well? Is there art there that you can consume that kind of helps? You mentioned your commute earlier, that, that adds something to, to your commute, that adds some enjoyment and some kind of human experience. Completely. And especially even a sense of ownership and belonging. Um, I really enjoy the conversation about, uh, during the Black Lives Matter movement, about our public art status and what kind of characters we were glorifying um, and the context we were giving about such people's life, about when they were actually alive, what was the context back then. And so there is something very interesting about thinking of what do we keep? And if we keep it, what kind of context do we provide to actually record? Because that is a big part of what public art should be about, is about remembering and educating. So there is a role to play with that. And also, what do we take down and replace with something that is relevant now, that is basically a reflection of who we are as a generation and how we want to be remembered 
um, in a hundred years, just saying, okay, in 2021, this is the public health that was installed in London. This is the reflection of what people cared about, who people were back then, who was living there, what was their stories, what, what themes was at the heart of, of our lives at these points. And that's, that's, that's fundamentally interesting and critical uh, moving forward. And I love that in some of those conversations that you're referring to there, that the decision-making process was given to the people who would be consuming that art. So I think there was one particular piece of artwork in outside an Oxford University College, and it was the student body that got to decide whether it stayed or whether they removed it, and kind of giving that power to the generation that's going to live with that piece of art for the longest period of time, I think is really empowering and was a great thing to see happen. And sort of linking to that and the next generations and um, looking at, so we've talked a lot about Gen Z and millennials actually and how they consume art, but what advice would you give to an emerging public artist, to someone who wanted to work in that realm and was kind of 16, 17, maybe even older, listening to this podcast and thinking, this has inspired me, how do I do this? What advice would you give me? I think more or less any artist today uh, should consider basically um, reaching more people. If at the heart of what being an artist is, there is this idea that you will create something that will bring value to people's life. You will either make them feel happier or make them question or address something that will be sort of very emotional and very intimate. So if what you do is of that relevance, don't stick to a studio setting. Don't just stick to addressing people who can afford to collect uh, what you do and buy it because this is wonderful and this is also something that we want to democratize, but that's another topic. Um, but working with brands, working with the public realm, this is how you actually reach uh, people who really, really need your art into their lives. Uh, this is how you reach someone who doesn't feel like um, they belong in a museum setting or in a gallery setting. And so this can be the first hook. You can basically have the opportunity of changing one's view on art and doing something that is so catchy <laughs> that they will be willing to look up and to sit down and to read a little bit and to get to know you and know what you do and get into this rabbit hole that art is of discovering this entire world of things that you will love, things that you will hate. And along the process of understanding why you love something so much or why you hate something so much, you'll eventually get to know yourself even better and change your views on so many things. So I would encourage literally any artist who graduates this year and all the self-taught artists as well uh, who I work with so many uh, at the moment to actually think of how to integrate uh, their practice into the public realm into um, commercial settings into different different ways to reach more people to enjoy and think and experience what they do I'm going to go to my final question um, and it's sort of trying to wrap up everything that we've spoken about so far. 
what role does public art play in shaping our consciousness around sustainability and around building a better shared future? We talked a little bit about the biodegradable installation at the bottom of the Eiffel Tower. We've talked a lot about public consciousness and COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter. So what does public art play in building a better future? So basically, public arts can have... um a huge role to play on that level in the sense that it can encourage better behavior. We can create art experiences and trails that encourages people to recycle or encourages people to cycle or basically changing the way we behave and live through art, through something that is beautiful and that gets our attention for a second. I think this is how we truly, truly change who we are and how we behave in our cities. Um, one of my favorite artists who represents at MT Art Agency is David Ayu Seven Schreiber. And he's an artist who cares tremendously about the planet. Um, and his idea is that, you know, over the past 60 years, our approach to try to get people to behave in a more sustainable manner was to shame them, uh, to make them feel guilt, to show them how terrible of an impact they have um, and that's really not something that works very much because we make people feel like acting responsibly is a chore. It's something that is by default a pain and nobody has time for that. Nobody has time to feel bad. And uh, it's therefore something that we tend to turn a blind eye on. So David's approach is actually to say, you know, you know, what is easy actually um, is to do something for someone you love. And we should all rediscover how much we love our planet, how beautiful it is, that it is not too late, that there is hope. And it is by building this relationship with our home that, first of all, we get together as the human race a bit more. And it's just so much easier to do something for someone you love than for someone you don't care about. So designing experiences in the city with that in mind, reminding that it is our home. It's, it's, it's a bit like a family member. We should, we should call that person and check on them. We should uh, invite them over for dinner. It's a bit the same that we should do with our planet. Um, and so artists have a huge role to play to basically find those conversations, spark them and inspire people to behave a bit better. Um, there's just so many things also. Um, we love a good polymathic uh, artist or an artist who loves to collaborate with people from other disciplines. Um, we have collaborated in the past with um, kind of chemists and studios would develop new materials that would be naturally fluorescent. So to bring lights to public art installation without using an, an electricity, for example, or to go analog and go with kinetic sculptures, then move with the winds instead of always relying on power sources. Um, we can also uh, work with um, research department that come up with materials using polymers that actually clean the air and absorbs pollution and make our streets cleaner to breathe and more livable. Um, so there's just so much that we can do and so many ways that arts can use materials and recycle or even create uh, city farming uh, gardens for local restaurants to grow food 
and to feed communities. And there's just so, so many levels. I could speak of sustainability is such a layered topic because there is, of course, the environment, but there's also the impact on society and on community and how we bring people together, how we bring people to interact, to be integrated. Um, there's so, so many layers uh, to that. But I, I hope this gives a little understanding of the endless possibilities that artists and sustainability in the public realm on a public art level can be really useful and not just a sort of art for art's sake activity of just displaying something beautiful. Beauty has a role to play, but it gets interesting when we get to several layers of understanding and letting people just go down that route of going through those layers as much as they feel confident. And that's, that's, that's the point, basically. Thank you, Elise. I've so enjoyed talking to you today and we're so pleased to have you as a part of our podcast series for the UK programme at Expo 2020 Dubai. I just thought I'd mention Lise is currently working to deliver Inside Out Festival, a new festival that collaborates with theatres, galleries and venues to bring art and entertainment to the streets of Westminster. So if you've enjoyed listening to Lise as much as I have today, I would definitely recommend checking out the Inside Out Festival and seeing some of her work. I think it's amazing the, the range of topics that we've talked about today, about COVID-19 and people's appetite for art, about Black Lives Matter and how sustainability and the condition of the planet influences art and also how it's, it's all around us. And as, as you said, beauty is all around us and it plays such an important part in our lives, but also helps us to, to delve a bit deeper and to understand some of our history and some of our communities. So thank you, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series. Look out for more podcasts in the series or subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want to stay up to date with all things UK Pavilion, links to our social media channels can be found in the episode description.